I uh, never taken a service in from this vantage point, and uh, never really intended to. <laughs> I mean, I, I've even taken a service in from these lights up in the ceiling, and uh, it was me, and I kept looking for Quasimodo of Bethesda as a kid, but uh, I think he just lived in my imagination. So, um, you know, you may be sitting here wondering, uh, you know, what he was thinking. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. He asked me to do this, and I gave him plenty of opportunities to let me opt out, and, and he's like, no. But I can tell you, I feel like the favor of the Lord's upon me this morning because the cameras aren't working, so I don't have to stare at myself. <laughs> Every time you start questioning the sovereignty of God, just bam, he does something like that. You're like, all right, he's still, he's still working and moving. So, <laughs> you know, I've thought long and hard and prayed long and hard about what to say. And, you know, I was like, what do you say? What do you say to people that changed your diaper? <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. What do you say to those people? What do you say to people that, when you were a kid, you know, they, they caught you chipping rocks off these walls back when they were shiny? And I colored them with markers and sold them to other kids and told them they were precious gems and, you know, had this little entrepreneurship going at seven. And she was really shady. And then you get busted by, those, by people and now you've got to preach to them. What do you say to those people? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but I think you start out by saying thanks. Because uh, Tuesday night, I sat in a class. Um, there was a polygenics class on Tuesday night. And, uh, and there was a lady in there. And, you know, when you, when you start talking about apologetics, you start getting into some very tough, tough questions that there aren't always easy answers to, if there's, if there's answers at all. And, uh, and she started talking about um, we were talking about the evil in the world and the reason behind it and all this stuff and, and the suffering. And, and she was a lady that had uh, lived with pain for 35 years. And so she's sitting there talking about what that experience is like and how she's, you know, tried to ask God for an answer and hasn't really got one. And, uh, and the one thing that I, I remember saying, and I, and I think this applies to a lot of people in here, but um, she's been in this church ever since I can remember. I've been in this church ever since I can remember, and, and I've seen her, and I've seen a lot of you go through a lot of really hard things. Um, I've seen some of you grieve. I've seen some of you lose loved ones. I've seen some of you lose children, and uh, and I've seen a lot of you stay faithful to God through that. And when I had to go through hard things, because I watched you, I knew how to do it. And so I want to say thank you. Because it's, it's a very rare thing to, to find people and, and commit to a, a community of believers and 
and, and, and have longevity with them, especially in our society. It's a very rare thing. And, uh, and so from, from the bottom of my heart, I, I thank you because you've shaped me, you've molded me, and you guys have marked me, and you've, you've pointed me to Jesus. And if it wasn't for you, I don't, I don't know that I would, I don't know that I'd have them. So, um, so thank you for praying. It's a very surreal thing when you come to church and you watch people that maybe you know well, maybe you don't know well, but you just have this flashback where they, you remember them praying for you when you're four years old or five years old. I mean, I couldn't put a price tag on that. And so, I don't know, I think it's kind of miraculous. Um, the other thing about, that I've really appreciated about Bethesda, other than the faithful people, and there are very, very faithful people here. But uh, I spent, as most of you know, I spent uh, my 20s traveling around. I, I was a professional baseball umpire, so I was not here uh, in this church for a lot of my 20s because I was, you know, spring training would roll around and you had to go to work. And so I would try to, uh, I would try to find churches to go to on Sundays when I could. And a lot of them were in very small towns, and you know, when you walk into you know, small town churches, everybody wants to come find out who the new guy is, and it was kind of weird, because I didn't want to tell them I was a professional baseball umpire, because then the thousand questions follow after that, so I ended up lying to them just to get them off my back, and then I had to go repent. I was like, oh, man. But, but I, I went, I traveled up and down the East Coast, I traveled up and down the West Coast, I've been all over, all over the Midwest, and... And I don't know that I've ever found a church that, that has as good of a balance uh, between the Word and the Spirit. I don't know that I've ever found that. And, uh, and so I thank you for that, too. I attribute a lot of that to Des. Um, he, he knew the Word better than anybody. <laughs> and so, and, and he never, never limited the moving of the Spirit. And so you have this balance of, you know, some people tend to be scripture-only people, and their trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. And then you have some people that, they love the Holy Spirit, they just never read the Bible. And so, that leads them down this weird, awkward path. I mean, I've been to some churches where you're just nervous that they're about to come up with a snake behind you and shove poison down your throat, and you're like... <laughs> so, so I, I love this place. Love this place. Okay, before we get started, um, I've had many, many, many requests to share a story about the old roommates. So, if you didn't know, my dad's the pastor. So, here it goes. It was, some of you have heard this before. It was Friday, the day before spring break. I was in eighth grade. My sister, the week before, had just gotten the chicken pox. Thursday night, I'd gone to bed clean as a whistle. Had great skin, moisturized, showered, all of it. Friday morning, the day before spring break, I wake up, and I look like a bland mine. I mean, just 
white all over my face, broken out from my head to my toe. There's not an area on my body that doesn't have the chicken pox on it. Not an area. And so, you know, being an eighth grade boy like I was, I wake up, I go to the bed, you know, I wake up and, and I didn't feel very good. I'm like, oh man, what's wrong? So I walk into the bathroom and flip on the light, look in the mirror, and I was like, yes, I got the chicken pox. I don't have to go to school today. Yes. So, you know, uh, excitement overwhelmed me. I went downstairs, and I'll never forget. I will never forget. I could remember it like it was yesterday. I walk up to the kitchen table. My mom's sitting down at the table. She's got the newspaper in her hands. She's reading it. And I walk up, and I, you know, try to drum it up and exaggerate it a little bit, act like I was sick, and you know, I'm like, Mom. You know, kind of that, what your kids probably do. And she flips the paper down and looks at me, and, she, and I was like, I, I don't think I can go to school today. I've got the chicken pox. And if you could have seen me, I'm telling you, I didn't have normal skin. And she looks at me and she goes, no you don't, you just have really bad acne. You're going to school. <laughs> Gone to bed Thursday night, perfect, and I guess in just eight or nine hours had completely broken out. And so, and so they sent me to school. Honest, honest as God is my witness. <laughs> they hauled me off to school and made me walk, first of all. After they told me I had to go, I had to walk to school, couldn't even get a ride. It was uphill and it was snowing. I don't know why it was snowing. <laughs> I don't know why it was snowing right around March, but it was. <laughs> and and uh, failed all my tests that day, felt miserable. And I remember that Sunday, they tried to get me to go to church, but since the school uh, was upset at my parents because four kids ended up with the chicken pox, I thought they thought I should stay home. So Theta Hall came over and watched me. And I, you remember, I was not, I had a bad... I mean, bad. So, so if you wonder why I have issues, um, <laughs> if you've never really quite understood me, you know, I'm working through them. Um, go to counseling, been through the 12 steps twice. <laughs> We're trying to get there. And if you think it just ended with her, he's all, you know, pointing fingers, just like Adam did in the Bible when he ate the apple. <laughs> It was, she did it, wasn't me. <laughs> Every other time I was sick, you know, I'd wake up, I'd throw up. I played in the orchestra when I was a teenager. And so I'd throw up and I'd walk downstairs and be like, Dad, I, I threw up, I don't think I can go to church. And be like, oh, you threw up? Yeah. So you really don't feel good? No. Well, you better go bring the bucket. Just set it next to you. You know, if you need to take a break while you're playing, it's okay. So, so for those of you that were uh, long, had long tenured choir people, uh, and you ever tried to use sickness or take an absence, if you need somebody to talk to, let me know. I've got a shoulder for you to cry on. All right. Um, Let's, let me pray, and then we'll actually, 
actually try to get to something important. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. As hard as it is to believe you're sovereign, sometimes you are. And so uh, I believe that you've given me this message. Help me to communicate it effectively and clearly. And when it's all said and done, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me um, tell you one story to start off. And uh, it's just kind of how I approach Scripture, how I try to approach the Bible. Um, I, was, uh, I was in Michigan one day. Uh, this was back when I, was, when I was in baseball. I was in Michigan one day, uh, so I was working a game for the Detroit Tigers organization. That night, uh, I ejected the manager, and, which, and he was a cool guy. He was a really cool guy. Um, and sometimes in baseball, if you know the game well, uh, you know that there are times where a manager gets ejected because he's legitimately upset at you, and you know that there are times where a manager will get ejected, uh, not because he's upset at you or has anything to do with you, but because he's trying to fire up his team and fight for his team, and so that those players won't, won't lay down on him. And so it was late in the game, and you know, as you guys know, the game goes on, the tension builds. Uh, stuff starts to matter more. It's late in the game. I think it was the eighth inning. I have this close play. I don't remember what happened, but it went against him. So this manager comes out, and and uh, and he's like, oh, "I think you nailed it." And I was like, "Okay, all right." So I know where this is going. And we start talking, and he's yelling, and he goes, "Shayla, I'm going to have to do it. My team, they're." They're a bunch of lazy bums in there. They're not doing anything. I can't stand them. I don't know why the Tigers send me these players. You know, he's just going off, and I thought it was kind of funny. Because I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to get run. I was like, okay. So I eject him, and he puts on a show for everybody. He goes away. And he was, he was a cool guy. He was the type of guy. We were actually friends. Um, you know, he's the type of guy after spring training games, you'd sit around the locker room, shoot the breeze with and stuff. And... Uh, and he's also the type of guy, after you eject him, he'd go hide in the bathroom in the dugout and give his signs to the pitching coach. And you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> so then you'd, between innings, try to go in there and go to the bathroom, make it stink for him. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, um, so after the game, we're in, a, we're in a press conference, or a news reporter comes in the locker room, and... Uh, and he asked, me about, he asked me about this play. He asked me about the, and I told him about it, told him what I saw. He asked me about the ejection. And I told him about that. And he goes, uh, he goes do you think that so-and-so, do you think this guy is a, is a good manager? And I said, quote, no, I don't think he's a good manager. I think he's a great manager. And so he's like, okay, all right, that sounds good. Thanks for your time. You know, walks out go home, or go back to the hotel, go to sleep, wake up the next morning, go down for breakfast. This place had amazing cinnamon rolls. You'd want to get up for breakfast there. So I'm going down, trying to get my cinnamon roll, walking through the lobby, and I look at the newspaper. And on the front page of this newspaper in, some, in Michigan, there's a picture of the game and a quote, and it says, no, I don't think he's a good manager, end quote. And I was like, oh, man. 
So I go and get my phone because I know it's only a matter of time before the league president calls. And so he ends up calling. He goes, hey, so do you want to explain to me what happened last night or you just want me to find you right now? And so we ended up working it out. Uh, told him what happened. The guy, you know, the, the reporter was a shady guy, you know, just looking for, looking for a story. And so uh, me and the manager kissed and made up. It wasn't that big of a deal. But I tell you that story because that whole quote, no, I don't think he's a good manager. It wasn't very long after that that I'm sitting around thinking about that experience, and I'm like, people do that to the Bible all the time. I mean, all the time. They just pull out whatever they want, forget what's before it, forget what's after, and if it just tickles their ears, man, they're going to use it and twist it and manipulate it. And so, um, and so my approach is... I, I want to, uh, to have that, an accurate view of Scripture as I possibly can, knowing that I'm never going to be completely perfect, um, and the danger in that is you know, might be sending me down the path of fundamentalism, and that's not what I'm trying to do, but, but that's how I, when I read Scripture, I, I'm trying to think of the meaning behind it. What is it really saying? Why was it written? Who wrote it? Who did they write it to? You know, just kind of all those basic questions, uh, and I look at those probably first before I look at how does this apply to me because I know if you answer those questions first, you can find out how it applies to you. So, all right. So that's just how kind of I, I work. So um, for a long time now, uh, I've had this question. Um, and it's a question that uh, I will think of and I will encounter somebody, I will experience have, a, have an experience, and, and this question will pop up in my mind, and I'll sit there and I'll think about it, and then inevitably, uh, I don't really get an answer to it, so the question will kind of fade away and it'll go away, and then sure enough, a few weeks later, uh, the question will come up again, and I'll encounter somebody else, and I'll think about it, and I'll, and I'll dwell on it, and I'll meditate on it, um, and, then, and then it'll go away, so this question really kind of haunts me. I feel like it follows me around. I feel like uh, I, I've, I've dealt with this question or thought of this question for years, and for the longest time, I've really, 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 really tried to find an answer to it. And I've, I've, I've thought about it, I've prayed about it, and I've searched the scriptures. And so today, all I want to do this morning is, it's only 11.35, Eleven thirty-six. Awesome. <laughs> All I want to do this morning is I want to go through a couple of things. I want to point out a couple of things to you. I want to ask my question, and then I'm going to attempt to give an answer to it. And I'm not saying that my answer is uh, the answer. I I think it is a answer. So so that's what we're going to do. So that's just kind of my structure. Um, all right. Nobody likes, nobody likes, it, whether it be in movies or theater or poetry or music or opera or any form that communicates, nobody likes indifference. Nobody likes the guy that gets up and speak 
and is monotone. Nobody likes that. You don't go and watch a movie and, and look at the guy in the background of the coffee shop drinking a cup of coffee uh, and reading the paper that has no lines and say, that guy, I want to be like him. He was awesome. He didn't do anything. No, you just, you are not, you're not drawn to that. Uh, we, like, we like passion. We like risk. We like uh, anything that, that's going to that's gonna put yourself out there. So, so like you've never uh, watched a romantic comedy about a guy that thought a girl was just all right. Never, never watched that movie. Um, and so I think we're wired this way. I think we're wired to be drawn to people that, that are passionate. I think we're wired to uh, be drawn to people that risk. I think we're just wired to, and we're attracted to those things. I just think we are. Uh, I know I'm attracted to those things. And so I want to point out uh, a couple things uh, in the scriptures where I feel like um, there's a lack of indifference. And so the first one this morning, if uh, you actually still bring your Bibles to church, it's Psalm 42. And so I'll give you a second to turn there. It's going to be in verse 1, Psalm 42. Okay. It says this, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Day and night, I have only tears for food while my enemies continually taunt me, saying, where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of a great celebration. Why am I so discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I love that part right there. Every, anybody ever had that moment where you, you know the answer in your head, but your heart's sitting there telling you, uh-uh, not buying it? Anybody? No? Three of you? Liars? Okay. <laughs> Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Now I am deeply discouraged, but I will remember you, even from the distant Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan, from the land of Mazar. Okay. Um, in this passage of Scripture, the one thing... Uh, at least one thing I want you to see is I think there's a very deep, deep cry of desperation in this. I think it's a picture. You see a deer who is probably completely dehydrated, who probably hasn't had uh, water in, in several days and is searching just so that it can have a drink. And if any of you have ever thirsted for long periods of time, you know what it's like when you go a long period of time without water, maybe, I don't know if any of you have gone days, I doubt it, some of you may have, uh, and, and you would just do anything for a drink. And there's, there's a sense of desperation uh, in that text, and it's like the psalmist is saying, you know what, I know what it's like 
to, I have tasted the presence of God before. I know what it's like. I've been there before, and I can't stand it right now because I'm not there, and I want to be back. And so as desperate as, this, as a deer is, as desperate as a, as a dehydrated, uh, longing for just a sip of water animal is searching for a drink, as desperate as that is, that's how desperate I am to taste and see the things of God again. That's what I think this scripture's saying. Uh, it's probably very different, and I think you know, growing up in church, I probably got the wrong idea. This is not a picture of Bambi and Thumper sitting down by the river with birds on their antlers and then just sipping a nice cold one having a good time. There's not enough desperation in that for me. And so it is, it is, a, it is, a, is a cry from the depths of the psalmist's soul saying, I know what it's like. I've been in the presence of God before. I'm not there right now, and I don't like it, and I'll do anything to get back. All right, let's move on. Psalm 63. Give you a second to flip over. Starting uh, in verse 1 again. O oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I haven't seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and your glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. Because you are my helper, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. So uh, this seems like it's even more of a cry for desperation. So when I read, when I read the Bible... And I, there's this tone, I guess, that I find uh, from Genesis all throughout Revelation. And it's this balance of what it's like to be in a relationship with God. And so you see at times in Scripture that there's this, ba- that there's this, there's this reverence and revering God when Isaiah says, woe am I, a man of unclean lips. That is reverencing God. And then... You also see uh, in Scripture that there are times where your relationship with God is, is very, very intimate, and you're very close to Him. And so you see, you know, God is like us, and we are like Him. We were made in His image. And so basically, I think what that is meaning is that the purpose of us being made in the image of God is so that our relationship with Him can be one of intimacy. But then at the same time, you know that God is not like us, and we are not like him. And so the purpose of that, I believe, is so that your relationship with, with him will be one of reverence. And so, you know, you have to balance this, this thing of intimacy and, and reverence. And, and, it, and, and it's not always an easy thing to do. In fact, I think 
uh, the entire book, one of the main points of the entire book of the Song of Solomon is, is telling you about the balance of this relationship because you've got Solomon the king who meets a girl and they go have a good time in the field and, and, he, and he is her shepherd. And so, and so you see that and she loves that. Uh, she loves the nurturing relationship of that um, and, and they roll around and frolic in the fields and those are very fond memories of her because you see uh, Solomon representing a shepherd just the way that, that Christ shepherds us. But then, if you know the story, she has to go back. And I know the story's kind of all out of order in, in the Bible, and you kind of have to put it together like a puzzle. But, but she goes back to, uh, to Solomon's kingdom. And when she goes back to Solomon's kingdom, he's like, yeah, I know that we had a great time uh, in the fields. I know that we were very uh, intimate together but I'm a king now, and I've always been a king, and when we go back, you need to recognize me as king. And so you see her struggling, and she like, feels this shame because she's presented up in front of people, and she's got to recognize uh, Solomon as her king, and, and I really think that that's you know, symbolic of, of, of the, the struggle of, of this balance in the relationship between the intimacy and, and God being a shepherd and, and the reverence of, of recognizing Christ as your king. And so uh, that's... but. But in this text, so you have friendship, you have reverence. And when I read this, this doesn't really seem like either one of those. And I still think those two themes run throughout Scripture, intimacy and reverence. But this one just kind of throws a kink in everything for me because um, I don't know that it's really reverence, but I don't know that I would call it friendship either. I don't know that, like, like, friends don't talk to friends this way. Um, uh, I joked about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, Caleb Prouty has been uh, on staff here, what, 10 months, maybe a year, something like that. And, and he's the youth worship leader. And we've gotten to know each other pretty well over that course of time. Um, and he's a very gracious guy. He puts up with my moods. Uh, I'm a moody guy. Um, and so some days I'll come in, and he just knows to stay away. And then some days uh, we just we cry on each other's shoulders. But um, but I don't talk to Caleb this way. I have never guys don't talk to guys this way. I've never walked up to him and said, "Last night, as I laid awake and stared up at the ceiling, my soul was clinging for you." <laughs> I remember those days where we went to middle school lunch. And the bond that took place. I mean, you don't, you don't talk like that, you know? It's like, it's a step, it's, I don't, it's not. It's, it's almost lust. It's almost lust. And, but the one thing it's not, is it's not indifferent. We don't like indifference. Okay, let's go to Habakkuk 3. Uh, 17.9. And I know that all of you just know right where Habakkuk is, so we won't need as long to get there. I know probably most of you got up and already have been reading Habakkuk for an hour and a half this morning. So, Holy Spirit just woke you up, whispered in your ear, so you don't need an alarm. I'll wake you up. The Bible's open on the coffee table. Habakkuk, let's go. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> That's true, I don't believe you. All right, um, we are going to be in, in chapter 3, and we're going to be in verse 17 and 319. 
And I love this. I love this scripture. And it's a scripture that I'd like, I'd like to pretend that I can say this about myself. I'd like to pretend that. And, and sometimes I can. But if I were to be completely honest with you, I, I struggle with this all the time. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not there yet. So it says, even though the fig trees have no blossom and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crops fail and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. Love that. I wish I could say that all the time about myself. Because basically what this passage of Scripture is saying is, I don't care. I don't even care what circumstances life throws my way because God's going to be praised. I don't care if I'm rich. I don't care if I'm broke. I don't care if I'm married. I don't care if I'm single. I don't care if I've got a big house or I don't care if I don't. I don't care if I'm sick. I don't care if I'm healthy because God's going to be praised. And I'm trying to get there, trying to get there. But it goes so far beyond our circumstances. And I think C.S. Lewis, uh, love that guy. I think C.S. Lewis said it best when he talked about uh, your circumstances applying to, to your walk with Jesus. And he said, I didn't come to God to find happiness. I always knew a bottle of port could have done that. And so in spite of your circumstances, uh, it's my prayer that I can get to the place where I'm going to say, I don't even care because God's going to be praised and that's where I want to be. Again, not a lot of indifference there. And do you not see the unbelievable amount of freedom that comes with that? I mean, what are you, what are you going to do to Habakkuk? I mean, seriously, what are you going to do to that guy? Make him homeless. I don't care. God's going to be praised. You know, give him a bunch of money. Awesome. I'm going to give it away. God's going to be praised. What, what do you do to that guy? The guy walks in a freedom that, that I don't see very often. Okay, um, just in case you thought we weren't going to get into the New Testament today, and I know I'm all over the map this morning, but bear with me, we're trying to go somewhere. We're going to go to Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, and I think with this we can pick up right where we left off last week. If you were here last week, um, you heard our pastor preach a sermon about consequences and affections. And the whole point is that where do your affections lie? Not let's think about all the things that's going to happen if you do this. But where are your affections? So keep that in mind as we read this. Yes, here I go. Yes, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. So he's saying, where do your affections lie? Where are they? 
What is going to stir your affections for Jesus? Because that's the things that I want to put stock into. That's the things I want to put value in. It is not, let's come up with a list of all the right things to do and all the wrong things to do. And it is not that. It is, let me stir your affections for our creator and for our king. And, and the thing about Paul, this is what fascinates me about this. So he wrote like 75% of the New Testament. Uh, he preached so powerfully and effectively uh, in Ephesus that the whole socioeconomic system was turned upside down. Um, <laughs> Paul's handkerchief healed people. Like, if I had a handkerchief that healed people, I'd sell it on eBay or something. I don't know. His handkerchief healed people. I don't even have a handkerchief, but if, anyway. That's unbelievable. And, and what I find is that Paul walked in a power that probably many of us will never know, and yet he's still saying that I might know him more. And so it's like, you haven't had enough yet. So he is unable to quench his thirst, that I might know him more. And I think he knew him pretty well. Okay. Um, I want to read a couple quotes to you from from men in history. Read some stuff out of the Bible. Uh, I hope that you saw that everything that's come out of, and I could have, I mean, I could go on and on and on. I could continue to pick texts out of the Bible uh, and, and scriptures out of the Bible, and we could do this all day. I just picked a few. I want to read a, a couple men that, that, uh, that are not in the Bible, but that are, that are in our history. And so, the first one I want to read to you is just a quote by uh, Augustine um, or Augustine, if you've been to seminary, whatever. All right, here's what, here's what he said. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys, I ha- those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Those fruitless joys I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are true, sovereign joy. You drove them from and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasures, though not to flesh and blood. You outshine all light. You are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men, who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, and my wealth, my salvation, you are sweeter than all pleasures. This is a man that had many pleasures. This is a man that drank wine, and he said, Jesus is sweeter. This is a man that had sex, and he said, Jesus is better. This is a man that had money, and he said, Jesus was better. You who are sweeter than all pleasures. All right, Martin Luther said, oh, I wish to devote my mouth and my heart to you. Do not forsake me for it, for if ever I should be on my own, I would easily wreck it all. Anybody? I would easily wreck it all. Again, it's okay. I knew we'd eventually lie to each other. (laughs) It's church, right? Spurgeon. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. I thank thee that this, which is the necessity of my new life, is also its greatest delight, so I do not at this hour, so I do, excuse me, so I do at this hour feast on thee. Um, and, then, and then this one just, this one just weirded me out. 
honestly. There's a guy, 16th century monk, named Brother Lawrence. And he wrote this book called The Practice of the Presence. Uh, and in fact, you can, uh, you can actually get it on Amazon. My sister works for Amazon. Thought I'd just plug that in there because she, you know, is just loving that I'm talking about that she works at Amazon. I'm going to get punched in the face by her when this is over. But you can get it on Amazon. And, uh, and this, in this book, The Practice of the Presence, this, I don't even know what to do with this. I have at times had such delicious thoughts on the Lord, I am ashamed to mention them. Did you guys hear that? I have at times had such delicious thoughts on the Lord, delicious thoughts on the Lord that I'm ashamed to mention. I think I just like threw the book down and like went for a walk because I, I don't even know what to do. Delicious thoughts on the Lord? I was scared I was going to get struck by lightning or something. Who says that? Who says that God is delicious? That's so weird. Ugh. Ugh. But I, I, I don't know what to do with that. He totally freaked me out. And I, don't, like, and I don't know what he would be ashamed of to mention. I don't know where he's going with that. But, but there's a lack of indifference. And so if there's one thing that, in everything I read to you this morning, and we could probably sit here and spend weeks going through the Bible and going through men in history about what they said about the things of God, uh, if there's a lack, um, there's always a lack of indifference in everything I read. And, and so my question this morning, and we're going to try to get to the answer here in just a second. My question this morning that comes up and it haunts me, and I think about it, and I think about it a lot, and I see it in people, and I see it in myself, and it freaks me out. My question is, if, if we can read scripture, and we can read history, and we can read about guys that are not indifferent to the things of God, why are we? Why are we? Why are we so content spiritually? Why, um, why, why sometimes you don't see the longing? Um, why not, why, why is there no, where's the desperation? Where is it? I, you do see it. I mean, it does come up, but predominantly in our Western, American, comfortable Christian culture, where is it at? Because I see a lot of apathy. And I think apathy is, is a cancer. I think apathy comes in and affects one area of your life. And it's just like cancer because it's not long before it affects every area of your life. And so, for me personally, uh, I get people come up and talk to me all the time. Like, hey, can you talk to this guy? You know, he's... He's a Muslim, or uh, he's a Buddhist, or he's, he believes in some other faith, but he's really starting to question stuff, and, and he's asking about Jesus, and he's really struggling with where he's at. Would you talk to him? And I'm, yeah, I'd be happy to talk to him. And I'll tell you what, that guy who might be uh, acclaimed 
Buddhist, acclaimed Muslim, acclaimed whatever, go to make the list, that guy doesn't make me near as nervous as an apathetic Christian. Near as nervous. Because when there's a struggle, when you see people struggling, I believe the truth is going to reveal itself to them. Our God is too big, he's too great, he does too many awesome things, and he is truth, and he will reveal himself to, to them. But when you don't see a struggle, and when you don't see it, where's it at? And I, I want to know why, and it bothers me, and the scariest thing is, is you go along, and I live life from time to time, and things are going great, and all of a sudden, then I see it in myself, and that completely, completely freaks me out. So... Let me, try to, let me try to answer this. I've gone a lot longer than I thought. All right, so to answer, we need to go to Ezekiel. Again, I think this is a answer. I don't know that it is the answer. It is a answer. Ezekiel 14. Verse 1, then some of the leaders of Israel visited me, and while they were sitting with me, this message came to me from the Lord. And so, just so everybody knows, and I'm sure we all do, uh, in the Old Testament, it seems like God typically spoke through prophets, and so uh, the nation of Israel, they'd want to know what to do, and so they'd have to find a prophet, and so if they're like, where do we go next, what do we do? Um, they'd go find a prophet, and the prophet would be like, go left, and they'd all go, okay, let's go left, and so, um, and so it's very different today, it seems like God just speaks to everybody, and they're ready to tell you about it all the time, and they pull the God told me card, even if it contradicts the Bible, I don't know where that comes from, but anyway, I just, honor you. <laughs> um, so God spoke through prophets, then, verse 3. Son of man, these leaders have set up idols in their hearts. They have embraced things that will make them fall into sin. Why should I listen to their requests? So if you know about the history of Israel, you know that God would do something awesome for them. Uh, He delivered them out of Egypt. Uh, He was constantly doing something great for them. And then some time would go by and they'd fall into idol worship. Probably the most common uh, probably would be Baal. You see that that, D, that God, little lowercase g, God, and there are a lot. Uh, you read about uh, Moses going up to the top of Mount Sinai, and, you know, what do they do? They built a golden cow. Okay. So you see them leaving God, settling for, uh, leaving uh, capital G God, settling for lowercase g, God. But this accusation is very different than just settling for uh, settling for an external lowercase g God. Because basically the accusation that, that has just been said is um, you guys are not building an external idol. You're not bowing down to a golden calf. You're not bowing down to Baal. Where's the idol? In their heart. In their heart. And so basically God's like, you know, I see the idols in their heart. Should I answer their question? Should I address 
their question or not. Verse 4. Tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The people of Israel have set up idols in their hearts and have fallen into sin, and then they go to the prophet asking for a message. So I, the Lord, will give them the kind of answer their great idolatry deserves. So here's what God said. God said, men are going to come to me, and they're going to come to me seeking direction for their life. And if there's idolatry in their heart, I will only talk to them. I will not give them direction. I will only talk to them about their idols. It is a fascinating, fascinating part of Scripture. Fascinating. Okay, so idolatry. Let's, let's talk. 2014 uh, Bible Belt, uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. You know, we obviously, every time I think of uh, an, an, an idol, honestly, I think of uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, that opening scene, you know, where he goes into that temple and, you know, there's that big golden head and he takes the sandbag and does the shift thing and the ball follows him out. Yeah, that's usually what I think of. But I think idolatry in our culture, in our day and age, I think it plays itself out much, much differently. And I think it starts off, uh, I think it starts off pretty innocent, and I think it ends, I think it ends incredibly, incredibly destructive. And so, I think it can start off with a desire. I think it can start off with a good, a good desire. I, th- I, have, I have a desire to have a nice house. Um, I have a desire to have a nice car. I have a desire to have a relatively in-shape body. I was careful there. I have a desire to have money. I have a desire to be safe. And you know what? There's nothing, nothing wrong with, with any of those things. Nothing wrong with those things. But the way that it turns destructive is when you take a good desire and you take a good thing and you hold it in the palm of your hand and you start to slowly wrap your fingers around it and you start to hold on to it tightly and in your heart you say, this thing has no longer become negotiable for me. When you get to that place, you have just given birth to an idol. And it is very, very dangerous. When you say, this thing is no longer negotiable, you might say, God, be who you are. Be the sovereign king of the universe. You know, move about, act amount, but just don't touch this. Just don't touch this, because this is non-negotiable for me. And so, When idolatry rules the hearts of men, they no longer want an all-knowing, an all-loving, sovereign king. Instead, they want a divine waitress to fetch their next wish. So why don't we long? Why don't we pursue? Why don't we yearn? Why don't, we, why don't we desperate for the things of God? 
I have to think the reason that maybe so few of us do may be the reason that we have an idol in our heart. And if we draw near to him, we are afraid that he will address this thing that had become non-negotiable for us. That's what I think. I was just going to end it there and walk off and <laughs> kind of keep it awkward for everybody. But that's not what I want to do. Because if I were to be completely honest, myself included, I don't think there's a person in this room that doesn't have an idol in their heart. I just don't. Some of us are, are, are willing to admit it, and some of us are not. And I think, I think, in fact, I think it was especially when you encounter the presence of God, when you come to the things of God, I think you go one of two directions. I think you either soften or I think you harden. And I think even just talking about this has, uh, and whatever your idol is, I mean, I just named a couple things. I'm willing to bet that I, I, hopefully the Holy Spirit uh, has, has given you what that is for you. Um, and, if, and if he hasn't, I, I hope that you ask him for it because he, he likes to do that. Um, and, and so I think you can either soften or I think you can harden. And I think some of us are, are in that place where, you know, hopefully just this morning, you're starting to loosen your grip. And you're saying, you know what? I never even thought about it that way. This thing that I value so dearly that has been very good to me that I dearly love has become non-negotiable for me. And that's a dangerous place to be. And maybe, maybe, maybe you're softening, and I don't think everybody is. I just don't. I think some of you, uh, just in this talk, your grip has just become tighter. And you're saying, no, do not touch this. Don't touch my job. That's where I find fulfillment, and that's where I find self-value. Don't touch that. Don't touch my neighborhood. I really like it. It's safe there. And you can, I mean, just put anything in the blank. Don't touch my pride. Uh, even though if you have pride, you probably don't recognize the fact that it's an idol in your heart. Um, but don't touch it because I don't have it. I don't know. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you what two big idols for me were. I'll tell you how I got here. Uh, I spent time in, in baseball. And I, one day I sat down and I asked myself the question, why am I pursuing the big leagues? Why am I trying to get there? And the answer that I got was, a, was, was incredibly scary and it left me very broken for about six months. And the answer that I got was the only reason I want to get there, and don't get me wrong, it would be cool, and, and, and baseball was not a bad thing. It was it's not inherently evil. But the reason I wanted to get there is because I wanted the status of being able to say I was in the big leagues, and status had become a god to me. And I wanted... I wanted to work six months to seven months a year and make almost seven figures and spend five months a year sitting on the beach being a bum, drinking frozen Dr. Peppers. That's what I wanted to do. And comfort, comfort had become a god to me. And I was pursuing status and I was pursuing comfort and they had become non-negotiables in my life. And I think status and comfort uh, in this part of the world, I think... Well, I think we all bow down to them. I think we all bow down to them. And so, what's been my prayer for this morning? What's been the whole point of why I wanted to say any of this? Two things. 
that the Holy Spirit would reveal to you those dark areas of your heart that you have a close-handed, tight-gripped fist on that you say is non-negotiable for you, that if you don't know what that is, he would tell you. And my second prayer, my second hope, is that God would break our hands. That God would, would break our hands. And just when you, like, after he breaks your hands once, uh, and you think, oh, good, I'm glad that's over. But don't worry, some, you got more hands. <laughs> you got more than two than you thought. That's my hope, that's my prayer. Let me pray for you guys. And I know there's something else that needs to happen. So, Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we want to desire you, we want to pursue you, we want to yearn for you, we want to even lust for you. And, Lord, if there are areas in our hearts that are keeping us from it, please reveal those to us so that we can be pleasing to you, so that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts can be pleasing to you. And, Lord, break our hands. Break our hands wide open so that those things that we have said are non-negotiable for us, that we don't want to give up, you can come over, you can break it, take it away, and that, Jesus, you will be the only non-negotiable for us. In your precious son's name, amen.